when you hear stories of neurodivergence, yet you can't find the ones that speak to your life. Utopia the Campaign aims to platform the voices of neurodivergence across different communities and life circumstances, so we find the words to get the support we need. Join me, Samantha Hugh, Director of ADHD Girls, as I uncover hidden stories of neurodivergence that come from a few, but speak to so many parts of our lives. Well, thank you, Rachel, for joining me on this campaign. Lovely to see thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I know that we first connected uh, way back when, you know, when we did that conversation with Women with ADHD campaign. And it's yeah, 2021, like, which feels like a lifetime ago, strangely. It's hard, isn't it? Especially as 2022 is coming to the end now. And I know at the time mm -hmm. we were talking about your experience, you know, being diagnosed with ADHD later in life. And today... I want to really dig deeper into, you know, the aspects of the other co-occurrences that you were also experienced, you know, throughout your life. And perhaps the ones that, you know, you have um, identified first, you know, even before ADHD. And um, so can you tell me a little bit about you and what is your neurodiverse experience? Sure. So I was diagnosed in year seven, so the first year of secondary school with dyslexia, dyspraxia and dyscalculia. And I think it was a real revelation in how the adults who worked with me saw me. I think prior to that, they saw somebody who was bright and capable, but was underachieving. And I remember a lot of my school reports saying bright, capable, but not performing. Um, and so in terms of getting those diagnosis, it kind of, at that point, there really wasn't access to a community to be a part of. So I spent still a lot of time feeling very isolated. The secondary school wasn't geared for neurodivergent students at all. So you felt very annexed away and very removed. So even though the onus was on inclusion, you were still really not included in the vast majority of what was happening in the school, even sort of socially, because you were annexed away with other students in kind of this little unit. Mm -hmm. um, so you, I definitely felt a sense of otherness in a big, big way, pretty much throughout my schooling. And then kind of coming into adulthood, constantly prefacing everything to do with being dyslexic or being dyspraxic or having dyscalculia with an apology. Sorry, I'm finding this difficult, always prefacing everything with an apology when I had nothing to apologize for. Um, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway I had from growing up neurodivergent and having spent the first sort of formative years of primary school just not achieving in the way people expected me to. My intelligence didn't match with the output and they couldn't reconcile that. Right. And um, you mentioned that you got your, was it the dyslexia diagnosis a lot earlier, right? And also dyscalculia. And how has your experience created barriers in learning and your time, you know, has it impacted your time in education? I think ultimately the biggest delay was in reading. I learned to read or the, the penny dropped when it came to reading later. 
according to my family, I wasn't reading fluently until I was about seven. And the penny dropped and then you couldn't get me away from a book. Um, but there was this, there has always been this correlation with people's understanding of dyslexia as it just being a literacy based issue. And it's far more than that. And I think because it's only seen by educators in the classroom, they don't really have a, a great grasp of the way that being neurodivergent, in this instance, dyslexic or dyspraxic, having dyscalculia or having ADHD impacts on your life outside of the classroom and the degree that it impacts on your life outside the classroom, because life does exist outside of a classroom. Mm -hmm. um, it's had the way that you frame your entire world. And so that was a um, definitely in terms of a barrier to learning people's narrow understanding of what those conditions meant. So when they heard dyslexic, oh, she can't read. They hear dyspraxic, oh, she's clumsy. They hear dyscalculic, she can't do maths. And they see it in this very, very narrow frame, not really realizing how everything is overlapping and how your entire worldview and your entire world experience is framed by how your world has been limited by others, not necessarily how you're limiting your world yourself. Mm. And how does it feel like to have this, um, you know, obviously there's this neurodiverse experiences, you know, individually they, they have this bag of conditions, like a box, you know, that people tend to put this uh, symptom in, right? And when they co-occur, and especially, you know, if one of them or, or a few of them, you know, ends up being hidden, you know, for longer. And, and for you, it was ADHD, right? Because yeah. um, it was not, not until in your 30s that you found out that you have ADHD. What is it like to live with, you know, these co-occurrences with ADHD, you know, and, and go through the education system? It's interesting reflecting back on it because I can now very clearly see where all the ADHD traits were. And I think about how everybody would always tell me you talk at 90 miles an hour and my incessant need to be understood and the ADHD part is doing everything at 90 miles an hour over explaining the dyslexia comes in when you're trying to find the word and so sometimes you've got that word in your mind and you just cannot reach it and you can't get it out of your mouth or reading something and then completely misunderstanding what you've read because you've left out a word or writing something and I will always remember when I was doing my A-levels, um, my English teacher reading my work from over, because I'm from back in the day where you did everything by hand. You had no computers and laptops to do your work in, unlike the students I work with now. And he was, I had to handwrite everything, which was really, really difficult. And I'd missed out a word and he saw it leaning over my shoulder, was reading what I'd written. Because, oh, you've missed a word out there. That's part of your condition, isn't it? And just the shame, just kind of that shame of like, great thanks for pointing that out to the entire class really needed that now I feel great about myself and my abilities thanks sir that was great and just stuff like that where it's all overlapping because I'm doing everything super super fast to try and keep up with my own brain whilst trying to find words whilst trying to understand what I've read and rereading and they're still missing the point lots of little things like that where if it had been scaffolded in a completely different way that suited my learning profile that mm. wouldn't have been an issue it's mm. like right okay let's go back over this and break this down or let's scaffold the task in a different way so that you can understand it right slow down there's there's not a time limit on this we've got time we can go back over this and I didn't experience that which is very different to 
the way that the students I work with now experience things where it's okay that's not sticking let's try it a different way or let's scaffold it let's break it down let's try different strategies let's think of this a bit more flexibly Mm. and I remember in our previous conversation a while ago now um, (laughs) you mentioned that there was some difficulties was it getting into college or university? yeah I just couldn't my my whole lead up to the idea of doing university was is just the idea it was just nope it was a big nope I couldn't bear the idea of having to go through another however many years of what I was already experiencing with a whole added level of pressure that you may have just wasted four years of your life if you don't get a degree at the end of it um I just yeah I I I completely noped out of that one so I didn't go to uni um because I just felt the idea of putting myself through it and struggling through it we were talking like you know 20 odd years ago now and that was a very very different world for neurodivergent people there just wasn't that element of knowledge and of course at that point we didn't know I had ADHD so I would have been struggling through with a whole missing piece of the the question whole missing answer and not being able to kind of get necessarily support that I would have needed um so I didn't even attempt it I just really didn't have the confidence in myself the confidence that I could make it through that without coming out to the other side of it just completely traumatized and probably not achieving what I would have set out to do on top of not really being sure what I wanted because the options available just seemed so narrow I don't think there was ever really a goal at the end of the tunnel there was no kind of right this is what you're aiming for this is what you're going to achieve this is what will happen afterwards I don't think anybody really had a great amount of confidence that I would come out the other side of school including university and then go on to a career there was never that kind of like step-by-step process waiting for me I don't think that anybody at least I didn't feel that anybody at the school really saw that for me and they weren't that invested in making sure that I would be okay when I left. So I kind of left and kind of went out into the world and got a job. Um, and I thankfully have always been in work since. There hasn't really been a massive amount of time where I've spent out of work. I've always been able to somehow get a job. And thankfully, I'm now nearly six years into a job that I adore um, with no degree, but a lot of experience. And that is, I think, when it comes to the kind of work that I'm doing now, probably even more valuable than having a bit of paper that says I can do it. That's for sure. And, you know, because when you take, talk, talk about your um, this, this dyslexia, dyscalculia and dyspraxia, you know, yeah. and the fact that they were identified first before your ADHD, you know, and given that, you know, ADHD was probably more challenging, you know, in navigating life itself but then those learning you know differences made it even more difficult to go through school but because people were always looking for you know how you were not performing to the standard you know that other people were performing and then that's why they could see the dyslexia first you know it's quite common in preschool actually in, in school children where they see the dys- dyslexia first before they even contemplate anything like ADHD. Especially in girls. I mean, I, I will always remember doing touch typing classes up in the little annex that the SEN kids were kind of shoved into and there being posters on the walls of an actor and of a singer and they were both boys and I went to an all-girls school. 
and they were for dyslexics. So you can imagine that it was kind of like, you know, I'm so-and-so from this band and I'm dyslexic. This actor is dyslexic. And you're, as a kind of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girl doing her touch typing lessons, looking up at these inspirational posters and I'm not seeing anybody I recognize because I'm a girl, you're a boy, your experience is very different to mine. I didn't relate, there was nothing to relate to. And there were no girls who, if they had ADHD, were open about it in my school group. Nobody that I knew, there were no actresses, there were no singers, there were no people who stood out as, hi, I have ADHD, you can relate to me. So I think because it wasn't something that anyone saw and wasn't looking for in girls 20 odd years ago, even though rationally we knew it existed, I mean, I didn't even think it was possible for me to have it because I never saw it displayed anywhere. And so I don't think in terms of them realizing the ADHD, when they're thinking ADHD, they're thinking red flags for behavior, red flags for hyperactivity, um, red flags for poor impulse control. They're not thinking about red flags for inattentiveness. They're not mm. thinking about red flags for anxiety. They're not thinking red flags for unable to just generally focus. They have a very, very narrow view back then of what to expect from a child with ADHD. And if you weren't bouncing off the walls, you didn't have ADHD. Mm. And so I wasn't because even though I was doing everything really, really quickly, they didn't view that as hyperactivity. Even though I was really, really anxious and stressy, they didn't view that as hyperactivity internally. They just saw somebody who was anxious and stressed for no good reason because she was dyslexic. Also, I wanted to touch back on the point that you very nonchalantly sort of mentioned about the SEMB kits that are just boxed in this, into this room, you know, and, and I've heard of these rooms, you know, where like the children were asked to go there to do the extra things that they don't provide, you know, to other people because they're different. And, and this yeah. room is a mystery to me because I come from a culture where we basically don't even have the term SEND, you know, and, but, but it sounded like not a great place to be in. So, because none of the people in my form group that I was friends with were part of this. So I was ultimately annexed away from the majority of people that I liked and who may have liked me. And the general ethos of my schooling was you go into the bottom set for everything regardless of your intelligence so no matter how bright or capable they were saying I was in my school reports I was always in the lowest set and they make no secret of that and so then you're kind of right you go off to your unit you do your touch typing lessons you don't get to do sciences you do health and social care you don't get to do drama you do something else instead because they they're with the best will in the world, they're trying to get you qualifications to get you a job. But the other end of that is that they're also trying to pad out their exam results because what they don't want to do is have the dyslexic kid doing GCSEs and A-levels at a specific level and bringing down their exam result scores because they're not getting A's. Mm. And so it's a, it's a catch-22 for them. They are required to provide you with an education. They are not required to go above and beyond to stretch you and push you and nurture you into being able to do those exams and get those qualifications, even if they're C's, mm -hmm. because the other side of that is it brings down their total exam result scores. But that unit, and they're still common, those kind of SEN units where, because inclusion is the name of the game, it is let's kind of keep everyone together. 
they serve a purpose, but they don't fulfill a whole person obligation. It's a very academic obligation. And that is the biggest problem and the biggest struggle for kids with SEND in mainstream schools is that you are there for an academic purpose and who you are as a whole person, I think often can get kind of forgotten about. Mm, yeah, I, I, I hear you, you know, saying this and describing how, how it was and then, you know, seeing how things are, you know, in many, many schools, it still looks like that, right? I think it still feels like that. I think yeah. there is this, having a neurodivergent diagnosis, being dyslexic, being dyspraxic, having ADHD, it doesn't automatically get you an EHCP. So there is not automatically the mandate for you to go to a specific and specially provided SEM provision. And so your options are mainstream because the independent sector has so many additional provisions that they are so much more expensive than mainstream and it's not unreasonable that families can't necessarily afford to pay for that independently and so you're kind of making the best of a bad situation these schools are trying but they are not geared to have the right provision to meet the needs of some of the students that they have to onboard and so when those positions in those schools fail it's very much feels to the child that they failed not that the school has failed to meet their needs, they failed to meet the need of the school. And it's the other way around, the schools failed them. On the other hand, the flip side of that is, it's not necessarily the school's fault in total because mainstream schools were never geared to provide the kind of education and resources with flexibility and differentiation that is required they're not formed to do that. They're still really working to a very archaic, kind of almost Dickensian, sit them all in rows, learn it all by rote, which is not something that neurodivergent brains are, are geared to do. Um, and so the system as a whole fails the SEND kids often, again and again and again. And that's why they end up in our independent sector, hopefully you know, supported by their local authorities with the HCPs, not always, because they're not mandatory, mm -hmm. but it's why the independent SEN sector exists, because the mainstream schools do not have the capacity to support kids the way that they deserve to be supported. Mm. Yeah, and in your work, I know we actually haven't talked about what you do yet, but um, <laughs> you actually gone on to work in the independent SEND kind of like sex sector, where you uh, work within a school that is amazing, and it's like won like a lot of awards and you know recognition for the work that you do for um, children with specific learning difficulties, right? Um, I, I wanted to um, ask about your experience in, you know, through the kids you support, what is the proportion, you know, that you see that these, these kids tend to have ADHD, you know, co-occurring with a form of, you know, learning difficulty? It's pretty high. I think if you were to, if I was to kind of review all of the HCPs that are, students have um often you would see co-occurring conditions not always adhd um but often i do think this is really important when it comes to the concept of co-occurring conditions to understand that even if you may not have full-blown adhd of any subtype there can be traits throughout pretty much every other neurodivergent diagnosis and so you may not have a formal diagnosis of adhd 
but those ADHD traits could be there. Same with dyslexia, same with autism spectrum disorder, same with dyspraxia. So you may have traits if, even if it's not a fully kind of fledged diagnosis. And the vast majority of the students I've worked with over the years, when I've reviewed their EHCPs, it has been something co-occurring with something else. Um, there's very, very few students that I've encountered where their paperwork would say only one condition. And even if there is only one condition listed, it may then also be listed against something like a other mental health or wellbeing condition like anxiety um, or pathological demand avoidance or opposition defiance disorder. So it's not that they are solely only one diagnosis, but it's that they're co-occurring with things that trait off of other diagnoses as well. Mm. I'm not sure trait off is the best way of explaining that, but basically they share traits. Yeah, no, you're completely right. Because if we're not seeing this, you know, checklist of um, traits, you know, within ADHD, and, and then we see like you know, more of this, maybe dyspraxia or dyslexia or dyscalculia that's appearing because this environment is making those traits manifest more. You know, absolutely. we absolutely like then cannot diagnose the ADHD, you know, but then. And also the masking. Yeah. I mean, so many kids are masking and they don't even know they're doing it. And that's really interesting when they first start with you and they're getting to know you and they're getting to understand what the boundaries are and they're getting to understand who you are and can they trust you? Do they feel safe? And then the mask starts slipping and then all sorts of other traits come out all sorts of things that you may not have initially seen in, in paperwork present. And that's a good thing. That's not something to be afraid of. It's not something that's disappointing in any way, shape or form. That is a positive thing because if they feel safe enough to drop the mask that they don't even consciously know that they've put up, um, then all the traits come out and we get to see them as a whole person and understand how best to support them as young people moving to working in a situation where they are fully independent and capable of supporting themselves once they leave our provision because so many of our students have come to us from provisions where they've been failed they had they take that failure to that to heart and they feel like they failed they haven't the school failed them you build them back up and either they can transition out back into a mainstream provision that can better meet their needs because they have the independence and they have understanding of themselves to advocate for themselves, or they can transition onto a different provision or they can stay with us. So it's really interesting over the course of the time you spend with them to sort of see how they grow and, and where certain traits may at certain points in, in, in their growing may come to the fore but they also may then, as they get more confident and they have more sense of independence and they have more self-assuredness to advocate for themselves and say, hang on a second, I, this, I don't get this, this doesn't feel right, I need a bit more help with this, can start speaking up for themselves. And you start seeing that their confidence grow and then those more anxious traits of all of neurodivergent conditions sort of take a step back because they can speak up for themselves. They have learned the language through spending time with us and part of our kind of, you know, so uh, speech and language provisions, life skills provisions, occupational therapy provisions, they've learned how to advocate for themselves, which is such an invaluable life skill. I didn't have that. I st still now, even now, kind of preface a lot of what I'm about to say with sorry, but, or sorry, it. And um, we don't want our kids to apologize <laughs> because they have nothing to apologize for. Yeah, you, you, you're so right. You know, some, some things are quite hard to shed. Uh, um, so my, myself, I, yeah. Off. <laughs> yeah uh 
I feel so moved by what you said, you know, about how these kids just drop their masks when they feel safe. And I think you don't really grow out of that, you know, um, because in education, you start to learn when you feel safe and you trust, you know, your education provider. And then when you become a grown up and an adult in the working world, you, when you feel safe, you're more likely to thrive, you know, be yourself, you know, and, and actually get the most out of the, the, the job. And um, so in, in the school, what is your role right now? It's an interesting one. I've moved really from over the last couple of years from being a teaching assistant to working in marketing support and then also leading lessons, um, teaching photography to our BTEC groups and also doing a little photography club with our juniors. Um, it's been an interesting transition because I'm still very much a part of the kids' lives day to day. They see me every day. Um, we interact in the corridors. I go in and sort of kind of marvel at what they're working on and find a way to share it through our social media, be it through Twitter or LinkedIn or on our website or on our blog. I write our weekly newsletter so I get to see exactly what all of them are doing and they always blow my mind. And then I get to work with some of them doing photography. I get to share something that's a massive passion of mine and um, hopefully spark it in them. And we've had some absolute cracking successes. I am one very proud teacher and they know it because I am very, very bad. The impulse to tell them how proud I am of them just kind of like, I have to just say it to them. So they always know how, exactly how I feel about their work. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because it's in some ways the marketing work has really been a kind of extension of advocacy work. I kind of feel very passionately about what we do. And so then being able to kind of shout about it and kind of find reasons to celebrate the kids um, is just such a massive, massive joy. Mm -hmm. Finding reasons to sort of celebrate what our staff are doing, our team are doing, and all the incredible work that they're bringing out of the kids. That's a huge privilege and I absolutely adore it. And I'm, it's strange to think, um, because I never saw myself working in a school. I hated school. So the idea of working in one is completely kind of strange to me, but I'm the happiest at work that I've been in a very, very long time and doing something that I'm very, very proud of with kids that I am in awe of. Amazing. And, but also it's a different type of school, isn't it? It's not the type yeah. that you know, went on to school. And so this is so no one ever asked me about it. The only thing I can think of to say is it's the kind of school I wish I'd gone to, which kind of, I suppose, gives it all away, really, because I didn't go to a school that had this ethos of let's teach you as a whole person rather than let's teach you for test schools. Um, and I think we didn't have speech and language therapists. We didn't have occupational therapists. We didn't have physiotherapists. And so those life skill lessons and the independence that we're teaching the students I learned the hard way social skills for example is something that I think everyone takes for granted but actually dyslexia ADHD even dyspraxia does have a social frame and so learning the appropriate way to express yourself learning the correct language to express yourself learning what is an acceptable way to be with somebody learning even understanding what the barriers of friendship are those are kind of things that you kind of get beaten into you in, in a way in, in a mainstream environment when you're surrounded by more than 30 kids in your class and then that's another set of 30 in, in your maths class in your English class in your science class in geography and history hundreds and hundreds of students um, with our school we don't have more than 90 in our um, senior school and college 
will have 90 in our prep school, which we just opened in September. And so they get to learn how to be a good friend. They get to learn what is expected social behavior. They get to learn the right language, the right way to express themselves so that they're not fumbling in a panic and they can have all these trials and errors with us five days a week, mm-hmm. make mistakes, come back the next day, try again. There's never that kind of judgment on them and that isolation, which I think a lot of neurodivergent students mm-hmm. who are my age <laughs> probably went through. Yeah, mine too, I suppose. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, because your, your, your school, the school that you're working in seems to be doing you know, a really good job. And I, I want to find out, like, how is school helping students, you know, navigate this learning difficulties to achieve their potential? And, and, and how do you do this whole person approach in a school? I think it starts with our pastoral and our well-being. It starts with making sure that the kids know that they're safe. It starts with understanding what they've come from and that we fully support their journey that they're about to start with us. So through the kind of well-being and mental health activities that we do, daily well-being, mornings, team building days that we do throughout the terms, um, we kind of get in we sort of create an environment for them where they know that there is not going to be a harsh punishment because we don't operate on a punishment system. We operate using positive behavior support. So we're not looking to punish or chastise them. We're looking to explain to them consequences, but consequences can be good as well. Consequences doesn't always have to be a negative or a nasty thing. Understanding that they can reflect positively as well as negatively on their day that it hasn't, you know, if some one bad thing has happened, the whole day hasn't been ruined. And for a lot of them, I think they've come from provisions where there was more of an emphasis maybe on punishment and chastisement for when things went wrong, things that were genuine mistakes, things that weren't intentional. Um, but also being able to work to the national curriculum, but work in smaller class sizes so we can differentiate the national curriculum to meet the students' needs. That's also really key to where we get the successes from because then we can pinpoint, okay, this kid is excelling in this area. So where can we stretch and push them in this area? Okay, maybe they need a little bit more work in this area. Okay, maybe we can dial it back a bit. Let's go over some bits beforehand and then progress. So there isn't that need to meet a specific whole school goal. We're working very much individually on lots of goals for each student. And then we have our support provisions from our in-house therapy team. We operate a fully integrated therapy approach. So we all get training from our colleagues in the systems that we use from speech and language therapy to occupational therapy, be it things like zones of regulation, be it things like um, social skills, very specific social skills, language that we use with the kids to help them kind of understand rather than saying that was bad, you shouldn't have done that say that was unexpected that's made me feel uncomfortable let's try it differently this next time let's use this kind of language instead being able to kind of have those very dedicated periods of time with those students as a group not necessarily always one-on-one with the social skills lessons and the life skills lessons that we do really does help kind of give them confidence in their own abilities as well and how to navigate the really tricky stuff that 
doesn't seem tricky if you're probably even neurotypical, but if you're neurodivergent, understanding little kind of social elements, okay, maybe by behaving like this, I'm possibly going to make the other person feel uncomfortable. I should try maybe doing something like this, or I've noticed that I'm a little bit kind of fidgety or steamy in this situation. Maybe I need to um, use this kind of language to explain why I feel that way. That kind of gives them the independence to sort of advocate for themselves later on in life as well to be able to when they do reach the working world ask for those reasonable adjustments that took me you know most of my adult life to realize I was actually allowed to do. Thank you that was amazing I was writing notes whilst you were saying it it's because some of the things that you said like I, I've touched on you know in, in, in so, so, so many places you know the the safety element you know just it like, like I said, you don't grow out of it. You know, if you, you know, went, went to school like that, you know, where you're feeling anxious all the time of, you know, worrying when is the next punishment coming? When is the next embarrassment coming? You're going to develop some form of anxiety that just follows you. Absolutely. And to the workplace, it is going to be a main trigger if someone just all of a sudden just, you know, micromanage you and like, you know, want to know what you're doing at every step. And it's-, it's, it's Or the opposite and just completely ignore you because yeah. you're more trouble than it's worth. Like they're fine, they're getting on with it when actually you're kind of there looking at your workbook and you're looking at what you're supposed to be doing and have absolutely no clue where to start mm. because you haven't really understood much of what was going on or you've been forced to sit down for however many minutes and you're kind of just getting restless and fidgety. So being able to kind of have that flexibility in the classroom to say, okay, this student would like a movement break. They put their hand up, they say, Miss, can I have a movement break? Sir, can I have a movement break? Absolutely go outside for five minutes, do some wall presses, do some jumping jacks, have a walk up and down the stairs, do a lap, then come back. You're in a better frame of mind. You're more awake. You're more alert. You're more likely to succeed. Be able to use fidget tools in the classroom. Be able to have, you know, specific furniture, like moving sit cushions for the kids to sit on so that they can sit, get some sensory feedback by moving in their chair a little bit. They're not interfering with anybody else's learning. There are discrete ways to manage their needs. I mean, the entire time we've been talking, I've been fidgeting. How <laughs> <laughs> would I've sat for like 30 minutes, you know? So like there are discrete ways to do it and to attain yeah. and to kind of be present in what you're doing and actively take part in what you're doing while still being allowed to be different and being allowed to be neurodivergent and being allowed to have ADHD and dyslexia to be able to say, I need a break, I don't get this. This is starting yeah. to make me feel a bit in the yellow zone. I need to step mm-hmm. out for a minute and kind of, you're allowed to do that. And it's that kind of ability to kind of empower the students to say that, that will stay with them as part of a, a fundamental building block as they grow with us and eventually leave our provision, be it to transition into a different provision or to transition out into adulthood and then still advocate for themselves, which is key, is what we should as educators really be kind of working towards is not just giving kids exam results, but giving them the ability to exist outside of the classroom. So um, you, you talked about like a really ideal environment, you know, and, and like it's amazing for children who are in it, that a majority of us, you know, grew up in, in, in a very different setting and some of our children are still going through that setting. You know, if there is something that say schools can do you know a mainstream school which may be not so many resources what's the core things that maybe they can do already for a child with ADHD with these learning difficulties 
you know, to help it's them? It's a very interesting question because it's something that I do think about fairly frequently. And I do think about the colleagues that I have who are mainstream teachers and how tied into a toxic kind of system they are because it's not through lack of want. It's not through lack of wanting to make a student feel accepted, feel encouraged, feel nurtured. It's that they are one person and there are 30 in their class and that's just a class that doesn't include every other student that they teach. And when you think about it, I think about working environments that I've been in that have had, say, more than 30 people and how much did I really know about them? How could, how well, you know, if someone had said to me, oh, who's that person? Would I know their name and what else would I know about them? And how I'm in a very, very fortunate position that I know more about the 30 kids I have in the prep school and I know plenty about the numerous students that I've taught or worked with over the last six years that I do know them that well I do know enough of the signs to spot when they're struggling when they need a break what's going on with them to check in with them I think it must feel really deflating for teachers in mainstream schools to have the desire and the passion to go into it and want to make a safe space for all of their students, neurodivergent or neurotypical, and not have the resources available for them to do it. Because I don't truly believe that any teacher wakes up in the morning thinking, it doesn't matter to me if a student doesn't do well today. I think, honestly, with any organization, be it education or otherwise, it starts from the top down. It has to come from senior leadership and it has to come from them wanting to create a safe space and also to understand that yes inclusion is important but so is equality and without accessibility you can't have equality so you need to be thinking about what you can do with your curriculum to differentiate it well enough that your neurodivergent students can access it because the honest truth is that there is nothing that happens in SEN education practices that is a secret. There's nothing that is something that couldn't be translated into any other provision, but the desire and the want and the will and the resources have to be there. Schools aren't always in control of their resources. And in all honesty, without a fundamental and systemic change to how our education system operates nationally, I think we will be kind of in the situation where independent SEM provisions are going to be needed for a very, very long time, because until someone's actually ready to confront the issue head on and look about, do we have adequate staffing? Do we have adequate resources? Do we have adequate funding? Do we really need to have 30 kids in a class? Could we have it? Do we have there should be no reason that schools anywhere in the UK are closing down. We need to really think about how we educate our students in a way that is nurturing and provides them with the kind of education that they deserve. But there is a reason that teachers are burning out left, right and centre and mainstream. And it is because the demands on them are so high. The demands on themselves, the demands they place on themselves are so high they can't meet their own needs how are they going to meet the needs of those 30 young people that are in their care five days a week and that's just like I said in that one class that doesn't necessarily count for the hundreds of other students that they may be interacting with throughout the, their week 
Yeah, you're right. Now, I often see teachers looking quite tired. And uh, sometimes when my daughter comes back and she said, oh, you know, this teacher just kind of shouted at the whole class today. And I was thinking, maybe she has noise sensitivity, you know, but also then it is a very, very noisy environment, right? And especially children being, you know, children, like they're not always quiet and, you know, and, and that's when they get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but it is probably no, they're not always quiet but they are always entertaining on some level I think ultimately where we've we have come a long way and I think it's it's difficult to not sound negative when it comes to talking about mainstream education especially with the background that I've had in it but I also do know that the lengths that teachers will go to to create resources. I know just how far teachers are willing to go to do and offer the best that they can. And I do feel so frustrated for my mainstream colleagues because I know that it is not through lack of desire, will, want, passion, vocation. I know that they want to provide the best education that they can. I also just know that they are working in a system that is not geared to that. And I feel really frustrated for them because no matter how much continued professional development these teachers do and how much they learn about neurodiversity, how much they learn about dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, ADHD, they've still got such limited resources available to them on the front line, limited time there's one of them to 30 students of which however many if we say that one in 10 students has ADHD and they've got 30 that's you know three ADHD students not to mention anyone who's dyslexic not to mention anyone who's dyspraxic mm -hmm. their limited resources on the front line personnel wise just like physically you really do need to have teachers available teaching assistants who are trained people who are available to, to help and support a person can't split themselves 30 different ways. So how do you juggle those 30? How do you juggle those 30 people and differentiate something that may be super simple to one student and super, super complicated to another? How do you teach that in a unilateral way and then make time within that lesson to then go over that with the student who's struggling? and then still keep up with the curriculum at the pace you're meant to be keeping up with it's not easy and I really do feel for them because if they even had half as many students in their class 15 I mean, we don't go really above 10 if they just had half that many students and a TA to kind of break down into groups to reframe and restructure and re-scaffold ideas and concepts the difference that would make but there isn't that ability to do it there isn't that space there isn't that time there aren't those that personnel there isn't that ability to just upend a mainstream school and do that and so it has to have almost a complete overhaul of the of the system to allow for it and then you really could have inclusion you wouldn't have to have SEN students annexed away or just chucked into the bottom sets you would be able to actually have a, a group a community learning together which sounds very utopian I suppose but I think it's you know, that's yeah. the, that is the dream. Whether it's actually reality, I don't know whether anyone's going to really want to kind of have that serious conversation and kind of really think about how we overturn and overhaul our education system. But just for immediate, what they could do in in the immediate and in then the, in the very very near and now, there are so many places that offer 
continuing professional development training and courses in how to teach neurodivergent students. There are so many charities, avenues, resources available, people you can get into run training on what really teaching ADHD kids is like, on working with dyslexia, on understanding dyspraxia. All of the awareness days that we have are incredible opportunities to really kind of hear the voices of the students that you work with who are neurodivergent and getting them involved, talking to them. You're never going to really get better training and understanding of how a neurodivergent student really works and really learns unless you have that conversation with them. Those awareness days come with so many pre-prepared resources that there's almost no excuse to not kind of dive into them when they come around and actually really do celebrate what makes these kids different and how you can take yeah. their differences and make them their strengths. You're right, you know, and, and, and you're right that it has to have a senior person buy in, you know, otherwise it's, the change won't happen. And as for the systemic change, it's uh, probably going to take a long time, you know, whether we will achieve a state of utopia, I suppose that is the hope, but, the time scale, like I can't comment, right? Because until the right person is yeah. in the right place who can make those decisions, you know. And, and something I that I really do see the vast difference in having ten students in a classroom versus thirty. Automatically, that just makes everything that little bit calmer, that little bit less hectic, that little bit less chaotic, that little bit quieter, a little bit less distracting. Yeah, I think even splitting a class in half from 30 odd to, to 15 would make a massive difference. I know, but it is at the same time, it's the funding and, you know, mainstream schools. The resources and the space available for schools. It's, yeah, it's a very, it's a very tricky one. And it's very, very frustrating to kind of be in the kind of the mix of being so privileged to work in the sector that I do, to see these kids thrive, knowing how big of a difference if you just transplanted our template across a whole bunch of other mainstream schools, the massive difference it would make. Well, let's hope somebody who can make decisions can hear this conversation. You yes, know, please. <laughs> and then, you know, hopefully, you know, make a change to the policy in time. But thank you so much, Rachel. It's been so lovely talking to you and hearing you as well. all, all your experience and also you know, um, your experience as a neurodivergent growing up with ADHD and the co-occurring learning difficulties. And also now, you know, working in a school, helping children, you know, who are probably going through similar things, you know, but with much better support. You know, it's, it's been great, you know, hearing some of the examples of what people can do and they can, can, can take home and hopefully suggest to the school, you know, that their children go to, you know, because it really doesn't take much. It starts with bit of safety and no punishment you know understanding you know and, and and then we can go from there so thank you really appreciate it my pleasure thank you so much for having me what did you think of this episode if it resonates with you do share it so we can empower other neurodivergence too we want to open up conversations for neurodivergence across all communities especially the ones who are underrepresented so they can get diagnosed and find the support they need in life and work. I'm Samantha Hugh, Director of ADHD Girls, and you can invite me to speak at your organization or subscribe to my upcoming bite-sized video courses on ADHD and neurodiversity via a new learning platform called Utopia. You can find the link via my link tree within my bio on Instagram and LinkedIn. 
Special thanks to QE Tech for being such a wonderful collaborator throughout phase one of this campaign.